All right, you can cut it off. There's nothing left but celebration, but we love the thrill of victory, don't we? I remember growing up, Saturday, Saturday afternoons, if Alabama football wasn't on, the ABC's Wide World of Sports was. Y'all remember the intro of that? The thrill of victory and the agony of defeat, and that guy comes flying, the ski jumper comes flying off and does, I don't know, 15 or 20 flips, and you think he's going to die. <laughs> we, we love the thrill of victory, but we not so much the agony of defeat. We like to focus on that success. We like to measure our worth by our success. We don't measure our worth by our failure. We don't measure our worth when we come up short. We get addicted, I think, sometimes to that success. We get addicted to that thrill of victory. And suddenly we begin to become accustomed to it, so accustomed to it, so, so comfortable with victory that when, when defeat comes... We question what's wrong. Certain evaluations, when we fail, we certainly want to evaluate where we've gone wrong. We certainly want to improve, but somehow or another, we, we've equated failure, especially in the kingdom of God, especially with Christians today, at least in America. We've, we've somehow equated failure and, and suffering with a displeased God. It's kind of like Alabama. You know, I grew up in Tuscaloosa, and, and y'all pardon me, I, par- I apologize, but when you grew up in Tuscaloosa, you're either an Alabama fan or no fan at all, right? There, there's no in-between. I pastored in Auburn for 10 years. They tolerated Alabama fans. In fact, there was as many Alabama fans as there were Auburn fans, so they couldn't do a whole lot about us. But in Tuscaloosa, there's Alabama fans. There are no such thing as any other fans. We're addicted to victories. We pay our coaches in that way. Why do you think Nick Saban gets so stressed on the sidelines? He knows his job's on the line. We, we lose more than two games in a season. His job's on the line. I don't care if Jesus is the coach. You're gone. <laughs> you have a losing season in Alabama. We love victory, but we don't like defeat. We almost become entitled. We, we almost feel like the NCAA just, just kind of owes us a national championship once every three years. Just other teams just lay down. We're Alabama. You just, we deserve it, right? Well, I'm probably exaggerating much, a little bit. It's not much. See, the American team was grateful because they didn't expect to win. They had no idea that they were entitled to win. They didn't think they were entitled to win. They knew that... They could work hard. They had sacrificed. They knew all that stuff. But they also knew that they had sacrificed before. They also knew that they had worked hard before. They also knew that they had put blood, sweat, and tears into everything they could do. And they've come up short. Because they knew that winning wasn't a formula. They knew that blessing wasn't a formula. They knew that that you could do all the right things and still sometimes come up short. Because life just doesn't work that way. And I wonder sometimes, do we as Christians think it does? We'd never admit it, but, but sometimes we seem to act that way. Uh, they say in parenting circles sometimes that just talking to your children is fine. They hear what you say, but they believe what you do. <laughs> as Christians, the world hears what we say, but they believe what we do. As I prepared my sermon this morning, I began to, on Job, I began to ask myself, 
have I become so comfortable that I'm no longer grateful? Have we as Christians gotten used to the freedom in Christ that, that somehow or another we began to feel that we're entitled to it, that we're no longer grateful for it? And maybe that's why the book of Job confused me for so much for so long. Because it tells a story that is the antithesis of what we have come to believe. I guess, at least in Western Christianity, what we believe is the Christian life. If you'll turn to chapter 13 with me, if you've got your Bibles. Job chapter 13, we're just going to read the entire scripture here right quick. And we'll go into a little bit of 14, but I'm not going to read verse 14 we don't have enough time for all that this morning. <laughs> you got to be careful. You don't let a preacher preach every six months. You know, you're going to be here the next new year. So, <laughs> Behold, my eye has seen all this. My ear has heard and understood it. What you know, I also know. I am not inferior to you, but I would speak to the Almighty. And I desire to reason with God. But you forgers of lies, he's talking to his friends who have constantly criticized him throughout this time. If you go back and read the, the beginnings of it. He says, you're all worthless physicians. Oh, that you would be silent and, and would let that, um, and, it would be your, and it would be your wisdom. Now hear my reasoning. And heed the pleadings of my lips. Will you speak wickedly for God and talk deceitfully for him? Will you show partiality for him? Will you contend for God? Well, it be, will it be well when he searches you out? Or you can mock him as one mocks a man? He will surely rebuke you if you secretly show partiality. Would not his excellence make you afraid and the dread of him fall upon you? Your platitudes are proverb of ashes. Your def- defenses are defenses of clay. Hold your peace with me and let me speak. Then let me come on, then let come on me what may. Why do I take my flesh in my teeth and put my life in my hands? And here's the scripture for today. Though he slay me, yet I will trust him. Even so I will defend my ways before him. He also shall be my salvation, for a hypocrite could not come before him. Listen carefully to my speech and to my declaration with your ears. See now, I have prepared my case. I know that I will be vindicated. Who is he who will contend with me? If now I hold my tongue, I perish. Only two things do not to me, Job says to God, then I will not hide myself from you. Withdraw your hand from me and let not the, the dread of you make me afraid. Then I call, then call and I will answer. Or let me speak, then you respond to me. How many are my iniquities and sins? God asked Job. Make me know my transgression and my sin. Why do you hide your face and regard me as your enemy? Will you frighten a leaf driven to and fro? And will you pursue dry stubble? For you write bitter things against me and make me inherit the iniquities of my youth. You put my feet in the stocks and watch closely all my paths and set limits for the soles of my feet. Man decays like rotten thing, like garment that is moth-eaten. This is the word of the Lord for the people of the Lord. Thanks be to God. 
Now, to be fair to Job and, and frankly us, I don't mistake that I'm equating our suffering with the loss of a football game or a hockey game or anything like that. My point was victory. And that we love victory, right? We, we get addicted to comfort. But Job says something different. Job says, though he slay me, yet I will trust him. Job, Job's faith extends beyond the victory and into defeat. Job is willing to suffer the consequences of whatever it is, for whatever iniquity that God has perceived him to do. God, Job is willing to go to court with God and challenge God to bring any witnesses against him and say, what? tell me what I have done to deserve all this, what I have done to, what have I done to, to frustrate you, God, to make you angry with me, to make you, you hide your face from me. But he says, though you slay me, though he slays me, I will trust him. Those are powerful words of faith. Abraham would have been proud. In fact, Abraham's son was spared. Perhaps Job would have wished for Abraham's life. Abraham had nothing. God came to him and gave him everything. Job had everything and God seemingly took it all. Abraham had regular audience with God. Job had to demand an audience with God and risk his life. Abraham's family supported him. Even, even he, Abraham even got to rescue some of them. Job's friends turned on him and declared him to be unfit. One of them even tells Job, the innocent don't suffer. Do we believe that? Maybe we don't verbalize that, but do we sometimes act that way? After my dad was killed in Iraq, I think most of you know that um, he, he was killed about 20, 29 years ago. Lisa and I will have been married 30 years, August 1st. Can you believe that? August 1st we've been married. So he was killed the first year of our marriage, <clears throat> and uh, along with two of his parishioners and my mom. And in the weeks following uh, his death, we sat in the hospital Surround friends and loved ones, unsure whether or not my mom would make it, still needing to prepare, you know, for the funeral of my dad and everything. So it was a while before we got to access his belongings and their belongings. But and I can tell you that that while we were sitting there lamenting the death of my dad and praying for the health of my mom, had one of my friends or any of my friends come to me and said, well, your dad deserves this. This is a judgment from God. It's a punishment from God. I can pretty much guarantee you my words would be a little bit more harsh than I might, than um, your words are ashes and it's better that you be silent. <laughs> when we finally were able to access his belongings in the trunk was his Bible. Now you got to understand my dad for the vast majority of my life, was not a Christian. Uh, he, he didn't want anything to do with the Bible, much less God. Uh, the prayer at the dinner table was forbidden at my house. To this day, I still have trouble remembering to pray for my food. <laughs> Six foot three, 265 pounds, he could be pretty intimidating. But when he turned his life over to God, there was transformation. 
and the people around him saw it. Even, even his countenance changed. And he read his Bible voraciously. He would, he would read it for hours on end and he would mark up things and, and circle things and underline things. And I remember a conversation with my mom. You know, she grew up in a very, very, very you know, conservative Christian home. Her dad was, we well, yeah, had a third grade education, a pastor, but you didn't even put stuff on top of a Bible, much less marking that Bible. I remember a conversation with my mom, Doug, you can't really do that, can you? <laughs> but two of the chapters, two of the, the books that were most marked were Job and Revelation. But as I picked up his Bible, an index card fell out. And on that index card were the words, Though he slay me, I will trust him. Ironic, victorious, sad. How should I have interpreted those words in that moment at that time of my life? I mean, after all, had my dad not given his life to God, he might still be alive. Had he not given his life to God, if he had continued being a sin, so to speak, and, and raging at other people and threatening to beat them up, and, and all the other things that come with, with his personality at that time because he was so angry and so bitter about life growing up in a broken home and an alcoholic father, blaming the world for everything that was wrong with his life. If he had gone on living that way, he might have been miserable, but at least he would have been alive, right? How should I have interpreted that? At that moment. Well. I can say that today. I celebrate those words. Then. It took me five or six years to, to unpack and unwind and understand what that meant. But today. The fact that he was willing go and do whatever the Lord had called him to do is a testimony to the transformation of the Holy Spirit in people's lives. So I guess whether or not you celebrate that as good news or bad news, it really depends on your perspective of suffering. Is it God's judgment as Job's friends say? Is it redemptive? In other words, is, does God cause it and there's some greater good that's going to come out of that? And I don't like either of those answers, truthfully. But you know what? Theologians have for decades and for centuries on end tried to solve the, the, the problem of evil, theodicy, and, and why bad things happen to good people. But you know what I've, what I've discovered? Is that's much more of a Western Christian question than it is a world Christian question. Mark 10 tells us a, what I think is kind of the opposite story of Job. Now, commentators, to be fair, they're not going to connect these scriptures, and so I'm not going to be so, so bold as to suggest that, that the rich young ruler is meant to be read in the shadow or even with echoes of Job. But what I do feel like that we can look to the rich young ruler as an opposite of response of what Job had to God. You're familiar with the story, Mark 10 Jesus sets out on his journey, a man comes to him, he kneels before him, and he says, Good teacher, what shall I do so that I may inherit eternal life? And Jesus said to him, Why do you call me good? No one is good except for God alone. 
You know the commandments. Don't murder, don't commit adultery, don't steal, don't give false testimony, don't defraud, honor your father and mother. You know this stuff. Why are you asking me? And he said to him, well, teacher, I've kept all these things from my youth. I've been the perfect example of a human being since I was a child. So I should inherit the kingdom of the earth of God, right? And Jesus says, one more thing you need to do. Go and sell all of your possessions and give it to the poor. And you'll have the treasure in heaven. And come and follow me. And then these words, but he was deeply dismayed. And he went away grieving. For he was one who owned much property. Though he slay me, I will trust him, was Job's response. And the rich young ruler's response was, oh, everything but that. Again, I've twisted myself into pretzels, especially after my dad's death, trying to make sense of this whole idea of, of why we suffer. But, but the reality is, is, I've come to realization suffering is just part of being a Christian. It's part of the kingdom. Where do we read in the Bible that suffering, that we're entitled, that once we become Christian, that suddenly our bank accounts are full and we have all the property we want, no debt and no pain and no glory. We're not promised that. For the last six months, I have been doing, I do my child work, but, but I've also been working with this organization called Dynamic Church Planting International. And, and I, I've had a relationship with them for about six, seven years, I guess, and did some training for them and teaching in person. But, but when... Uh, it was founded by a guy named uh, Paul Becker, uh, who God gave a vision to plant five million churches. And so he, he wanted to confirm it, he went back, and, and so his, his life for the last ten years had been dedicated to pursuing God's vision and raising up church planters, dynamic church planters, to plant dynamic churches around the world for the last ten years. COVID knocked them for a loop. The world shut down. They had to get innovative, and they came up with this online learning platform, and they developed it, but nobody knew how to use it. And so they reached out to me, and they asked me to help them a little bit. And so we devised this new training called Coach Directed Training, where they watch videos online, and they're paired with a coach. And uh, so for an hour a week, we, we, we meet with them, we encourage them, kind of give them some direction, and pray with them. I have been humbled. As I talk with some of these other world leaders, these church planters, I lament some of my time in Auburn for 10 years when we, church planting is grueling work. It's not fun. But it, it's hard work. And I lament some of that time. I mean, the reality is, is, is we were there for 10 years. Our work wasn't done, but I began kind of, you know, eight years into it, began to kind of think, okay, who can I find to kind of take the reins and lead this from here? Because I'm exhausted. And I prayed and prayed, and finally, you know, God raised someone within the congregation, and my kids were getting older. I wasn't real crazy about the, the, the um, when, you're, when you're planting a church, and this, this sounds really bad, I... But when you're planting a church, the, the people that you tend to attract are not church people. Surprise. <laughs> Isn't that the point? We've learned to kind of hide our baggage in the church. We may complain, you know, but we don't typically, you know, brag about all the shenanigans. And if we have any shenanigans, we certainly don't post them on Facebook, right? <laughs> 
we've learned to hide really well, but, but those outside the church don't hide too well. They just kind of come in. They believe us when we say, come as you are. <laughs> Crazy people. <laughs> come as you are. Who thought of such a thing? It's just mind-numbing, you know? I mean, anyway. So we're just dealing with some people that, that didn't hide their stuff very well. And our kids noticed that. And so they begin to model and mock and do some of that stuff. And so we're like, yeah, maybe it's time to move out of town a little bit. I'll admit some of that stuff. But in comparison to what some of these world leaders are one guy is going to plant a, uh, a church in the middle of India. They're 98% Hindu, a little bit of Muslim, but you certainly don't find a lot of Christians there. Another guy, has, he's 21 years old, he's already planted 10 churches. We need a building with air conditioning and video, auto, AV equipment. Do you know what they need in Africa to plant a church? A tree. <laughs> a tree. As I've worked with people around the world, I've heard the stories of how their children have died of disease. How family members were killed. Pastor friends were drug out of the house in the middle of the night. I've talked to Chinese Christians who, who literally had to meet in a different house every night because if they meet more than, um, more than times in the same location, the authorities become suspicious. One American missionary was in a meeting with Chinese Christians, and it just blew my mind. Their, their question was, uh, do other people in the world know about Jesus? <laughs> what? Do other people in the world know about Jesus? That's your question? You've got an American missionary sitting in front of you, and your one question is, do other people in the world know about Jesus? Well, of course they know about Jesus, he said. And he began to tell the stories of African Christians and, and South American Christians and, and Russian Christians. And, and that spontaneous celebration broke out among the Chinese. They were so excited. Oh, praise Jesus. We're so excited to know that we're not alone out here. Thank you, God, they said. And, and then he began to talk about the American Christians. And, and one of the things he says is that, that, um, that as he began to talk about Americans, that they got quieter. And they said that, they began to cry out, Why, God? Why don't you love us like you love the believers in America? Why can we not experience the miracles that you grant to the believers in America? Mr. said, I couldn't believe my ears. I asked him, what is wrong with you? What are you upset about? He said, your experiences uh, rival the stories of the apostles. Uh, the miracles of healing were common. It, it was like Pentecost all over again for you people in China. You're in the midst of revival and, and you're questioning why God doesn't love you as much as the American Christians. Almost half of their pastors have served multiple years in prison for sharing their faith and, and often planted churches in those prisons. How could they possibly compare those miracles to what this missionary had told them about America? 
they were surprised that he didn't understand. And then their question, which is more miraculous? Miraculous, miraculous. I don't know what miraculous says, but miraculous. <laughs> which is more miraculous? That we can divide our Bibles book by book, giving each pastor one torn out section of Scripture. Or that you say that you own dozens of Bibles along with the music and books and study materials. Which is more miraculous? The Chinese are being healed by the hundreds of thousands that maybe a thousand of them will come to discern that their healing has come from Jesus or that you have access even to Christian doctors, nurses, and health care at any time you choose. I've come to the conclusion that as much as I lament that my children are spoiled, they may or may not have gotten that idea from me. My work with DCPI is reshaping my expectations of the Christian life. As I've coached leaders from around the world and trained coaches around the world, I've read, I've had to reread my Bible uh, because I realized I had read it from the perspective of a middle-aged, middle-class man from a country that had humble beginnings but has since flourished. Listen to how we flourished. Since we began, we have grown from 13 colonies to over 2.5 million people. To 50 states and 14 territories with a population of, of more than 330 million. The economy has swelled almost 21 trillion dollars. And while income and wealth disparities remain an issue, economic output per person has risen by a factor of 30 over two centuries. Advances in public health, sanitation, and germ theory and disease are have more than cut the child mortality rate from, and disease, from uh, more than 45% at the founding of our country to under 1%. And our citizens live 35 years longer than average. In fact, I read an article, there's a 68% chance that humans will soon pass to be past 130 years of age. Educational attainment has skyrocketed with more than 200 million people having at least finished high school compared to 18 million in 1940. Happy Fourth of July. <laughs> grab a hot dog, eat a hamburger, go to the lake, get on Bellamy's boat. Grab <laughs> when his props fixed. <laughs> yeah, grab a friend. Be grateful. Celebrate. But don't get addicted. Don't equate our blessings as a nation. With kingdom living. Don't equate the fact that we're proud to be Americans. With that we're citizens of the kingdom. I don't say that to make us feel guilty. I, look, I enjoy comfort as much as the next guy. We got a house full of guests coming over. We're going to grill out some hamburgers this afternoon. It's going to be fun. We're going to celebrate. But I don't want to be the rich young ruler. I don't want God to come to me and say, Jeff, I need you to go. And I say, God, I've done all this stuff. I've served, my, served you my entire life. I planted churches in Auburn for 10 years. We, we've had the blessings of that. I've done my work for you. But I don't want to say, him say, great, wonderful. I've got one more thing to do. Sell everything you have and give it to the poor and come follow me. And I don't want to leave and shake my head and say, well, 
Well, geez, I know you can ask me to do that. I hear a lot of us talk about revival. I hear it all the time. I hear prayers for revival. I've heard it since I was a kid. And most of the time when we talk about revival, we're really talking about the American revivalism movement, the Great Awakening and things like that. But if you go back and read about the Great Awakening, it really wasn't a very good message. Sinners in the hands of an angry God, really? I'd probably convert too if I felt like God was going to strike me with a lightning bolt every time I stepped wrong. <laughs> Problem is today is nobody believes it. <laughs> I hear a lot of people talk about revival and how our nation re- needs revival, and and I agree, we need revival. But you know what I've learned is the biggest revivals usually arise out of persecution. There's a lot of weeping and gnashing of teeth when revival breaks out. doesn't look like what we sometimes think it's going to look like in us living in our wonderful homes, our air-conditioned homes, getting out on our boats, grilling out with our friends. doesn't look that way. I think sometimes we've equated revival. Well, I won't say that. I recently began to read a, a book. <clears throat> And uh, within it, it stated that in the 1960s, the Chinese government wrote in a secret white paper concerning faith in China. In China, The church in China has grown too large and too deep. We can't kill it. We have determined to give the church properties, buildings, seminaries, and denominational headquarters so as to make the church rich. Once we do that, we'll be much more successful in controlling the church. As I said, my interactions with Christians from around the world have caused me to reread my Bible while confessing that I'm incredibly comfortable. I can't lose sight of the fact that my relationship with God is only possible because I'm the beneficiary of Jesus' suffering on the cross. From that perspective, I realize that I shouldn't be surprised when suffering comes my way. Jeremiah understood that perspective. Joseph understood it. He spent years in jail. Nehemiah, because of his suffering, he becomes a cupbearer to the king and ultimately rebuilds the walls of Jerusalem. Elijah, Elisha, Abraham, Jacob, and even Job, in the end, comes to understand that though he slay me, I will trust him. Jesus says, take up your cross and follow me. Weirdest story. I had a professor at Trevecca. This was an undergrad. I had no desire to become a preacher. No inkling that I ever would become a preacher. And if God, God had called me to become a preacher, I said, not just no, but no. <laughs> but nonetheless, it was Trevecca. So you had to have four religion classes, right, Melanie? <laughs> And the first one, well, the first one I had was the introduction to biblical faith. That wouldn't rock my world because we had this professor in there that basically told me all the stories I had ever heard were made up. Now, I don't believe that, neither do you, but he did. <laughs> and I know what he's talking about today, but, you know, this little boy from Tuscaloosa, Alabama, who, you know, grew up with a winning football team every year, 
um, I misunderstood. But intro to philosophy is the one that really got me. And I had this weird professor in there. And I still know him today. Uh, he, and he's still weird, by the way. Um, his name's Craig Keene. If you look him up, you read some of his stuff, he's out there. He got fired from Trevecca eventually, not because of what he was teaching, just because he's too insubordinate. But that's a different story for a different day. Anyway, he'd stand up in class. Every professor opened class with prayer. And so he would do this. Let us pray. Lord, slay me. What? <laughs> Lord, slay me. He'd just sit there in silence. I'm thinking, where's the door? <laughs> And help me, Lord, and help us, Lord, to remember you were slain for us. Amen. <sighs> Though he slay me, I will trust him. Luther flogged himself nightly. Bonhoeffer died to the hands of the Germans and millions of Christians have died since as martyrs in Jesus' name. Now understand that, now I understand not all suffering is the fault of Jesus. Uh, uh, following fault is the reason, result, excuse me, of following Jesus. But not all suffering is a result of persecution. But equating a lack of suffering as a blessing can lead us to mistakenly think that following Jesus results in no suffering. But we know that's not true either. I know plenty of faithful Christians who who do not suffer, who suffer not because of persecution and not because they follow Jesus, but simply because suffering exists in the world. I'm reminded of Diana. Lisa and I have known Diana and Tamara, her sister. They were five and three years old. I was a worship pastor, the minister of music at, at a little church in the valley and and their parents came back to the church. They had moved away, and we had heard so much about them, and they moved back. And they would sit on the front row every Sunday morning, cute as a button. And we watched those girls grow. Lisa taught them in youth group. They were on our impact team. Godly Christian girls, godly Christian parents. Incredible people. Last year before COVID, Diana was diagnosed with tongue cancer. Doctors were baffled. They said, well, this, this is not something you see in a 35-year-old woman. This is something you see in an 80-year-old man who's used, who smoked and used tobacco his entire life. This is usually a disease that doesn't kill people. It just kind of has the end. She's 35 years old. She never smoked in her life, certainly never chewed or used tobacco. She's incredibly gifted. She's incredibly creative. She could sing. She could play. She, she could write poetry like nobody's business. So she spent the last year on chemo and radiation. She went back to the doctor a couple of weeks ago and, and was hoping that they would tell her some good news. This is her blog. 
Got news yesterday, my biopsy revealed I still have cancer. After all the harsh poison and treatment, after all the prayer and trust, it stands persistent disease. The decisions I have made to make in the coming days hardly like a choice at all. Immunotherapy or reconstructive tongue surgery. The outcomes are usually grim either way. I'm grown exhausted in this illness, in prayer, belief, and faith. I suffer daily, have now for over a year. I'm well acquainted with pain, crying, moaning, and even yelling out for help as part of who I am. And there's nothing I can do except trust where I'm meant to be. Maybe I'll be better tomorrow. God's plan is the best no matter what. Love works for my good, even though it hurts, literally, every day so much. I often wish I, I could have gotten cancer that, e- that, that didn't affect my eating, drinking, speech, and singing like anywhere else. Please, not my tongue or throat. More than likely, if I opt for the surgery to remove the cancer, my quality of life will take a hit. My speech and eating will never be the same. Communication will be harder for me. It's already not, not ideal. I may not speak at all. I probably won't sing again, which absolutely shatters me. And it's common to be on a feeding tube for the rest of my life. I'm a young person, so you can imagine all the dreams of a husband and children and just what we consider to be a kind of normal routine. All that gets blurry when you're starting a when you're staring at such a monster. Dreams of health, travel, my writing, I'll be okay. I'll figure out how to dream new dreams. I won't be alone on this road. I have good support. I just wish things could be different. Perhaps the surprise of better health awaits me. I won't say a miracle. I've, I've given up on finding a miracle. In fact, I'm already a miracle and so are you. If you've been praying for me in my life, consider it answered. I'm a miracle. I've always been a miracle. You have too. And you've been asking for healing right now. The answer is apparently no. Maybe it'll come later. I believed as much as I could for my cancer to be gone. Try to be positive and have good energy. I didn't stress. I focused on love taking care of me. One of my preaching professors said, you never end on bad news. (laughs) You just don't do it because the church likes a good story. The church likes a happy ending. Don't ever end with bad news. But you know what? As I read the story of Job, there's plenty of good news here. He tells him, listen carefully to my speech, my ears. And in fact, he demands, he says, I'm going to be vindicated. We've got to wrap this up. I'm going to bring you 747 in for our landing here in a minute. Job laments, says, oh, that you would hide in me in the grave, that you would conceal me until your wrath is past, and that you would appoint me, set a time, and remember me. If a man dies, shall he live again? All the days of my hard service I will wait till my change comes. One commentator noted that every theologian, every theologue, every person in existence at that time knows That man will not live again. He knows the answer to Job's question is no. And yet Job is faithful enough that he stands there and he says, I'll stand in my grave. That's how confident I am. That this is not a judgment from you. 
I will stand in my grave until my time comes and I will be silent. True faith is always more practical than visionary. Job doesn't yearn for a, a Shangri-La existence in eternal life. Rather, he envisions a conversation with God, a mutual relationship between creator and created being, and, and a time when the veil of mystery of God's purpose will be lifted. How many of us could say the same? What is our response to suffering? How many of us envision our pinnacle of faith being a conversation with God and walking with Him? What is our response to suffering? For all the huffing and puffing God does with Job, in the end, God agrees with Job. You've done nothing wrong. I find no fault in you. In fact, he chastises his friends. These were some of the wisest people that he knew. The wisest among his friends. And God said, you're wrong. Job didn't do anything wrong. He did everything right. I heard this the other day. Life is full of raging storms. And it's normal for us to want to be delivered from those storms. But perhaps instead of praying for God to deliver us from the storm, our prayer should be for Him to learn, help us to learn to dance in the rain. Some of the most beautiful souls I've met in the last six months are people who have endured and are in ten storms. And they're incredible dancers. Talking to another friend yesterday who was called. We worked with him in Alabama. He was a Hispanic coordinator there. And the district called him from California. was paying him. But as happens within institutions. At the time, the focus was multicultural churches. Hispanic ministries. That focus shifted. And when the focus shifted, so did Abner's salary package shift. He said he's three jobs now. Just to make ends meet. And I told him, I said, I'm, I'm sorry you're suffering, man. And he said, no, Jeff. I'm not suffering. You know why? Because we learned this is part of our call. Plant new churches is a huge challenge. And you know, you and me are called to do this. And then finally, the last good news of the day. Diana's blog, last blog. Thanks for praying and believing with me. God could have taken it all at any moment. I know. I never doubt that, even now. But love has a reason. My faith, my faith is untouchable. It still is, though it's being rocked. But what a journey. I've learned so much. I thought I'd be healed today instead of typing this, but I'm not. We don't always get what we want. But I know God created me to glorify Him. I was always going to get cancer. I was going to endure a lot of suffering. Then it was going to go anyway after treatment. This is my story. This is my song. There's still hope. I'll still praise Him. I'm just so tired today after the new settlement. But I hope in Him. She's dancing in the rain. Both Abner and her have both learned to dance in the rain. And that's the good news of the Bible is that, yeah, there's a lot of suffering that goes on in the kingdom. Even as we serve Jesus, there's lots of suffering, but, but God is with us. He never abandons us. He walks through it. We've heard all the things. And even in the midst of it all, we still sometimes lament. And that's okay. 
Psalms are full of lament. Job is full of lament. It's okay to question God. That's not a sin in any shape, form, or fashion. It's how we learn to dance in the rain. Our story, and this is it, wrote a song called Blessings a few years ago after she learned her husband was diagnosed with terminal cancer. Here are the, here are the words of that song. Says, we pray for blessings. We pray for peace, comfort for my family, protection while we sleep. We pray for healing, for prosperity. We pray for your mighty hand to ease our suffering all while you hear each spoken need. Yet love is way too much to give us lesser things. Because what if your blessings come through raindrops? What if your healing comes through tears? What if a thousand sleepless nights are what it takes to know that you are near? What if trials of this life are your miracles in disguise? We pray for wisdom. Your voice to hear. We cry in anger. We cannot feel you near. We doubt your goodness. We doubt your love. As if every promise from your world is not enough. All while you hear each desperate plea. And long that we have faith to believe. When friends betray us. When darkness seems to win. We know that pain reminds this heart. That this is not our home. What if my greatest disappointments. Or the aching of this life is a revealing of a greater thirst this world can't satisfy. What if trials of this life, the rain, the storms, the hardest nights, are your mercies in disguise? Amen. Today is communion sermon Sunday, and I was trying to figure out how I was going to end this sermon. And somehow or another, my... Um, communion packet has disappeared from my pocket. So I'm on, it's probably back here. I don't see it. But anyway, I've got my communion packet now. Thanks, Melanie. <laughs> but when Ryan texted me this morning, he said, hey, do you want to eat communion or I want to? It's communion Sunday. And oh, yeah, 